Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He had poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Holy God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is eternal, that it never fades, it never fails. It is sure and steadfast. We can trust your word. When nothing else is trustworthy, we can trust your word. I ask you, Lord, for your anointing in these next few moments of time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In verse 4, Our salvation was secured by an event that happened in the past. Verse 5 tells us we are not saved by works. And verse 6, we are regenerated, renewed, and born again according to His mercy. That's the outline of where we're going this morning. Let's read verse 3 together one more time. So Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to the various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is a picture of what it looks like to live without Jesus. If you're in Christ, it's a picture of what your life used to look like. If you're not in Christ, it's a picture of what your life looks like now. You're either in Christ or you're not. If you're not in Christ, he says, you're foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions. You don't get a choice. You are one or the other. If you were in Christ, it's something that you once were, past tense. It's that word, were. You had a slave master. Romans 6, Paul describes the life of the sinner as bondage. He says, we were slaves to sin. You will be submitted and serve something. It will either be the passions of your carnal nature, nature, or it will be King Jesus. One or the other, you're going to be a servant and a slave to somebody and something. It's just a matter of what or who. It's a picture of chaos. The, the people of God, us as believers, we really do have a better life. It's not meant to be prideful, but it, this is a life of worship. And a life of worship is a much more peaceful life than a life that does not have Jesus at its center. But the most important word 
in this verse, or the most powerful in our lives, is that fourth word, were. It's what changed our lives. We were. You used to be something, and you're no longer that. We were foolish, but not anymore. Romans 5.8, But God shows us His love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us before we came to faith. He died for all of humanity in their sin. The songwriter captured it when he said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, past tense, but now I'm found. I was blind, past, but now present I see. Jesus Christ changes lives. The hands that used to commit sin now are lifted in worship. The voices that once blasphemed God now use His name in vain. That once used His name in vain now are lifted up in song and worship unto God. I once was a degenerate. Everybody who ever lived could say that. I once was degenerate. Now I am regenerated, born again, renewed through the gospel. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. And I want us to see this is a summary of God's work in our salvation. Let's read it together and just think about what's, what he's saying here. In verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a lot here. Paul says a lot in just a few words. So what changes between verse 3, we were sinners, we were foolish, you were those things. In verse 7, you are now heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How do we get from verse 3 to verse 7? Well, it starts in verse 4. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now, if you remember in the last sermon in chapter 2, Paul talks about the second coming of Christ. The second appearing of Christ. He appears the first time 2,000 years ago. His second appearing is sometime in the future. We read it last week, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the first appearing of Jesus Christ. He says the same thing in verse 4 of chapter 3. Now he says in, in chapter 2, it's the grace of God has appeared. In chapter 3, the kindness and love of God has appeared. God is multidimensional. You can't say everything there is to say about God all at once. The Bible is a diamond with a thousand points of light. And over here it says it this way. And over here it phrases it a little different. It's really saying the same thing. There's really one central message of the Bible that King Jesus is wonderful, amazing, glorious, and He saves. But it says it different ways all throughout the text. Verse 5 is probably the most well-known and most quoted verse in the book of Titus. And it just simply says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is the main idea in this long sentence, and it really is one sentence in verses 4 through 7. If you look, there's, there's no periods, there's just commas. There are translations that 
put a period in there, but I think it's more accurate to say it's one long sentence. It's one big idea that, you know, they, they teach you in school not to write sentences that long, but Paul is doing just that. He's, he's putting one big idea together in one sentence. And the idea is really simple. It's in verse 5, God saved us. He doesn't leave room for confusion. You don't need to go to seminary to understand Titus 3.5. A five-year-old can understand this idea. God saves us. That's the beauty, that's the simplicity of the whole idea here. God is the cause for all human salvation. Not me, not my works, not how good or moral I live, not how I treat my neighbor, not how much I give, not how I vote, nothing. It's God. God is the cause of my salvation, not because of works done by us, but by God. So look at this phrase, not because of works done by us. That sounds very familiar because there is another phrase that Paul says over and over in his writings, and that phrase is not by the works of the law. So works of the law is referring to the Old Testament law, and it would apply more to his Jewish readers. What Paul seems to be doing here is transposing this idea in something that applies to all believers, Jew or Gentile. It's works done by us. Now it's not just works of the Old Testament law, it's just the works that we do. The things that we do, our actions. You cannot live a life that is so moral, so clean, so good, so honorable, so kind, so loving that it will save you. That's not the basis of salvation. People can be good, but not righteous and still go to hell. Why? Because it's God who saves us. It's God who makes us righteous. We are sinners, and if we are to be saved, then our sin must be dealt with. And this is what Jesus does on the cross. He deals with sin. So it's not a matter of, well, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's not the message of the Bible at all. I've known some very, very good people that seem to live very upstanding, moral, giving back to the community, wonderful family. It's all commendable, but they weren't believers. And in the end, they will be lost, according to Scripture. Here's where I want us to see how the Bible uses different metaphors to show how we go from being sinners damned to sinners saved. So there's different metaphors. One of them is John chapter 3. Jesus answers Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." So note the work of the Holy Spirit, because we're going to come back to the Holy Spirit's work in Titus 3. It's at the end, but the Holy Spirit is active in this act of regeneration in Titus 3 and 5. Here in John 3, you're born a second time. 
It's, we call it being born again. It's another way that Paul describes all the same occurrence. Another way Paul describes the same thing is that we are in Adam. We were in Adam, but now we're in Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that man is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as one trespass, he's talking about the original sin of Adam and Eve, the original sin, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, speaking of Christ, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. I was lost because of Adam's sin, I was saved because of Christ. Then he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Christ is the second Adam, the perfect man. Adam is the imperfect man. He's the sinner. Christ is the perfect Adam. So we move from being condemned to death through Adam to being alive in Christ. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, for as by a man came death, so by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's speaking of the same thing. It's our salvation. Titus 3, regeneration. John 3, being born again, born from above. Romans, 1 Corinthians, moving from death in Adam to life in Christ. Another way he says it is by telling us that we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So these are all metaphors for the gift of salvation that God grants to us through faith in Christ. Another way to say it is our text this morning, Titus 3, 5. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over, though, the idea is the same. It's an idea of renewal of new life. In fact, some translations like the NIV will use the word rebirth in Titus 3, 5 rather than regeneration. It's the same idea. Rebirth, born again, regenerated. It's being made new. There's only one other place that this word, that regeneration, the word that Paul writes, there's only one other place in the New Testament that that word shows up. And that's when Jesus uses it in Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world. So that phrase, new world, is the same word that Paul writes when he says regeneration. It's, again, restoration, renewal, rebirth. Jesus said, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the world, the universe, God's creation that was old and in decay will be renewed and experience a rebirth. Now that's important to see because it's a theme in the Old and the New Testament. It's not just that the man or woman who is in Christ who will be born again, the creation also will experience a new birth. All of creation will be regenerated in the age to come. So Isaiah speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, as does the book of Revelation. This is the central 
theme in Romans 8, or one of the themes in Romans 8. So hear what Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So if we take the entire teaching of Scripture on the new birth, then we find that all of God's creation, including His people, will experience a new birth. That's the whole picture of restoration in the New Testament. God is going to restore this whole created order from its sinful state. There is a new world order that is coming. It's not one contrived by world leaders in a political theater. There is a new world order coming when Christ shall appear. That is the biblical new world order. So think of your new birth in Christ as a piece of a much bigger, bigger puzzle that when complete will depict God in all of His glory. So we look at the past part of verse 7, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And if you're an heir, what are you inheriting? You're inheriting a new heavens and a new earth, a new body. According to Jesus in Matthew 19, you're inheriting a whole new world. So what we're talking about this morning are realities that if we open our spiritual eyes, they are realities more real than anything that's going to happen to us this week. They are realities that ought to leave us stunned and filled with nothing but hope. We look at the, the language in John 3, and the imagery of washing in Titus 3, and we see it as an echo of how the Old Testament also uses water as a metaphor. Jesus is explicit about this when he is shocked, a little stunned that Nicodemus doesn't get this imagery because he's a scholar of the Jewish scriptures, which is our Old Testament. So Nicodemus, aren't you, aren't you supposed to know this stuff? Being a leader of the Jews, you know your scriptures, you're not getting what I'm saying. Because Jesus is framing all of this in Old Testament language. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. We see this whole idea in the New Testament in baptism. We see that the idea of water in the Old Testament, this metaphor being imported into the New Testament where it's an actual act by the church to baptize new believers in water. It was promised in the Old Testament for the people of God. It is fulfilled, all of this is fulfilled in the miracle 
of God declaring us righteous, God justifying us. All of these metaphors of washing and regeneration and renewal and recreation are all images of what actually happens when God counts us righteous in Christ. So how do I make that connection? Salvation is the central idea of this passage. Verse 5, God saved us. Like Salvation is central to this. God saved us. It's central and it's simple. In verse 7, He justifies us. There is a correlation between verse 5 and verse 7. It's all one big idea that justification is how God saves us. I talked about this last week that Martin Luther said justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It's one of the major reasons. There are more than one, but there it is one major reason why the church, which was not trying to be innovative, the church was not trying to break away from Rome, the church was trying to restore back to what the church should be. The word Catholic simply means universal. There was a Catholic universal church. And Rome said this universal church is this, and it, you know, purgatory and the efficacy of grace through the sacraments, and all of these ideas that were not biblical. And so men, not just Luther, but more than one man, stood up and said, no, this isn't, this isn't right. We need, to, we need to reform the church back to a biblical view. And one of the ideas that was at stake then, even as it is now, this is why there can be no conversation to bring Rome and the Protestant church together. Uh, there are certainly efforts and conversations to do that, but there are deal breakers in there that, that require us to be separate, and one of those is the idea of justification. God counting us righteous is the only way a person can be saved. When Christ's righteousness is imputed unto us, not through the sacraments, not through anything that a priest or a man would do. The gospel is the basis of our salvation, the good news of Jesus and His kingdom. It is the story of Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection. Justification is the gospel in action. It's how God redeems sinners like us and saves us from eternal damnation by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if we ask the question, because here's where the Holy Spirit comes into play, if we ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit, we're already off track. If we say, what is the Holy Spirit, we've missed it. Because the question is, who is the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit is God. It's not a third of God. It's not God divided. The Holy Spirit is fully God. John Owen was a Puritan. He released a book in 1674. He's probably my favorite of the Puritan writers. And in his book in 1674 on the Holy Spirit, he wrote that God revealed Himself through the Father in the Old Testament, the Son of God in the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ. Now God is, God is not a shapeshifter. He is not sometimes the Father and Sometimes He's the Son, and sometimes He's the Holy Spirit. He is at all times Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, it is God in His transcendence as Father that holds prominence. It's not that the work of the Holy Spirit is, is not there. It is. We find the work, the operation of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis, the, the Spirit of God moves upon the waters. And then God speaks. This is not a different spirit. This is the, the Holy Spirit, uh, God moving among the earth. So we see, but as a rule, it is God as Father that is prominent in the Old Testament. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is who hold, holds prominence in the New Testament. And it's not that we don't see God the Father at work. Jesus prays over and over and over. John 17, the high priestly prayer. It's a beautiful display of that relationship. And it's not that we don't see the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at His baptism. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And that's what starts then the promise of the Holy Spirit leads to the prominence of the Holy Spirit in the church age. So for the past 2,000 years, it is the work of the Holy Spirit as the revealing of who God is the last 2,000 years. Joel would prophesy and say, It shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even upon the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the people in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit, some people mocked them and said they are drunk, and Peter's response was this is what the prophet Joel prophesied about. What you're seeing is the fulfillment of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. John Piper wrote, Surely everyone who loves God will be earnestly seeking to know and experience as much of God as possible, and in our day that means especially as much of the Holy Spirit as possible. And I mention all of this about the Holy Spirit. Because God, because Paul writes in our text that He saved us, God saved us, not because of works done by us, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the Spirit of God is poured out upon us through Christ and that is active and it is the cause of what changes us from a heart of stone to a renewed heart. The person of Christ and the Holy Spirit are always tied closely together in the New Testament. You cannot follow Jesus and reject the work and operation of the Holy Spirit in your life. They are inseparable. And then Paul closes with this sentence. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what's, what's Paul saying? The saying is trustworthy. What's the saying? Verses 4 through 7. There are ideas. Paul doesn't say this at all, but there are numerous inputs from writers, commentaries, uh, 
that say that verse 4 through 7 is a song or a hymn or a common saying. I don't know that it is, but what Paul is saying, and the reason people say this is verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. He's saying, just like we would say, this, this axiom or this cliche, this saying that I just said is trustworthy. So he, he, there's an inference that it's already known in the church world. And it's certainly um, Colossians 3, we think, uh, is a song that Paul writes about. So Paul sometimes will quote hymns or songs or sayings that are already uh, well known in the church world. But whatever the case, he's saying that these words that I just said to you are trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. So here is the practical application for knowing all of this, how God saves us, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's it. Right believing, right knowing leads to right living. We don't do good works so that we can be justified. That's the main point. God's the one that saves us. We do good works because we are justified, because God saves us. And so we spend our lives doing good for the sake of our families and for the sake of the others because God saves us. And once you know how you are saved, and once you know why you are saved, and once you know who it is that saved you, once all of that is settled in your heart and mind, only then are you free to do the good with the rest of your life. So Paul's argument is not that you shouldn't do good because that's not what saves you, so it doesn't matter. That's not his point at all. Paul's point is it's God who saves us. Now, because God saved you, let us do good works. Let's pray together and then we will take communion together. Let's pray. Father, this morning, you have shown us in your word, not just here, but throughout the New Testament, you've shown us over and over that it is a miracle of grace and mercy that you reach down and save the sinner. You don't not only save us, but every day that we wake up, if we have a desire to be saved, we credit you for that as well. We're kept saved through the gospel. So Lord, I pray this morning that in a world that is losing its mind, in a world that is spinning out of control because they have forgotten you and there is very little acknowledgement of you that in the midst of all of this that we would not be stupid people, that we would not be ignorant people, that we would not be foolish people but that we would be people with a mind and a heart toward you, your Holy Spirit, the work of Christ on the cross, and your word. We will all someday stand before you and give an account for our lives. And I pray, Lord, let us stand before you as servants who are good and faithful according to your great mercy.
I ask you this morning, Lord, get a hold of our hearts and our minds. Talk to us. Let us walk according to your spirit with wisdom and authority, acknowledging you for who you are and not being drunk on the excesses and the pleasures of this culture, but being sober-minded, living with a mind that is looking toward the soon coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll just invite everybody to come and get a wafer and the juice. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, you took the Last Supper with your people, with your disciples, your followers, before your death, before the Passion. And you told us to do this in remembrance of you, Lord. So I ask you that, uh, that we would just meet you here at the table. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, this is my body that was broken for you. Jesus said, this is my blood that was shed for you. Amen. Let's worship him in dismissal. Jesus, thank you this morning for the crucifixion, the death, the violence of Calvary that secured our salvation. We are debtors to that act of dealing with our sin. And Lord, in return, in response, we live lives of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of humility, to give honor forever to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.